when something happens to us, we need to remind ourselves, you know, it's going to be okay. And even if it's changed my life forever, I'll be okay still. I'll find a way to be okay. And, you know, I've dealt with a lot of things in the past, so I'll just deal with this. And, you know, let me dig in and ask, what do I need to do here? And those three things together seem to work synergistically. They kind of feed off each other. When we're optimistic, it's worth thinking about how we cope. It's worth focusing on the challenge. And when we focus on the challenge, it's worth thinking about, well, God, I've done it before. I guess I'm, I guess I'm capable of this. And when I think I'm capable of it, then we become more optimistic. I said they feed off each other. And they create this mindset, which I call the flexibility mindset. And I think the key thing is that we cultivate that mindset, that we get ourselves into that mindset, however we do it. I mean, these three things seem to work best. Resilience. What does it really mean? How do we know we're resilient? What are the factors and practices that determine resilience after adversity? Is resilience something we learn or something we earn? George Bonanno is a professor of clinical psychology at Columbia University and internationally recognized for his pioneering research on human resilience, listed as one of the top 1% of the most cited scientists in the world. He's the author of The Other Side of Sadness and his most recent book, The End of Trauma. As a boy, he dreamed of a future full of adventure, traveling the world, reading books, sleeping in fields, and painting. By 17, he hit the road, hitchhiking, painting, working across the United States, and soon found himself taking care of people, juvenile offenders, older adults, at one point working directly with severely psychotic patients at a psychiatric hospital. That experience had a profound impact on him. He noticed with curiosity that some of the patients recovered surprisingly quickly after leaving the hospital. Nine years after finishing high school, he received a scholarship to study at Hampshire College and was soon designing his own psychological experiments. Today, he's the founder of the Loss, Trauma, and Emotion Lab at Columbia University, and his research includes the study of resilience following 9-11, military combat deployment, traumatic injury, life-threatening medical events, natural disasters, disease, divorce, and job loss. His lab has been doing groundbreaking research on what he says is the key process underlying human resilience, flexibility. In his book, The End of Trauma, he describes this research in what he calls a flexibility mindset and the three components of practicing a flexibility sequence. I was so curious to talk with him in the context of the foreseeable now, because one of the most intriguing aspects of the science of flexibility and resilience building is what happens in the right now. What do we have the opportunity to harness and practice in the present moment that can take even the most challenging experiences of the past and open up the vistas of our future? We talk about our repertoire of coping strategies, context sensitivity, and optimism. He explains why he doesn't like the term trauma-informed, why he says diagnostic categories are social constructs, and whether, as a scientist and a painter, he thinks there is an art to science. This conversation is fascinating, so hopeful, 
and packed with the science and practice of resilience from one of the most renowned researchers of our time. Dr. George Bonanno. George Bonanno, welcome to The Foreseeable Now. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, congratulations, first of all, on your new book, The End of Trauma, How the New Science of Resilience is Changing How We Think About PTSD, a curious title which I will ask you about, but congrats on it. Thank you very much. So there's just so much generative power in this book, and I can't wait to get into it. But I'd like to start with playing with an idea, if you're game. Yes. So... This is the foreseeable now. And I'd like to start by playing with this idea of the foreseeable, not as predictive, but as a kind of looking ahead to a future time, which we do, right? Uh, from the time that we have that capacity when we're young, this kind of imaginal world having our own sense of a future, a future self, a future way of being and living. And I watched Lisa Feldman Barrett interview you on Inside the Psychologist Studio, which listeners can find online. It's wonderful. And of course, Lisa is a neuroscientist and the author of a couple of wonderful books, but How Emotions Are Made is one that I read. You tell her a story about when you were 10 and stopped sleeping with a pillow. Do you remember that? You, you, just, like, you decided, I was going to stop sleeping with a pillow. Just tell us that little anecdote, because I think it's so interesting. Um, well, I remember it was I actually remember the night it happened. I think I was looking out the window and I just had this sense that someday I was going to leave my home and go see the world. And this just felt like something I would naturally do. And I, I will probably have to sleep in fields, uh, you know, sometimes when I'm traveling and I can't find a, a place to stay or I, I don't have the money for a place to stay. And I should probably get used to that. So I decided first thing I need to do is stop sleeping with a pillow just to make sure I can get used to a different way of sleeping. I mean, how does that land with you now? I'm just thinking of how that that little boy, right, just his future held this theme of predicting resilience as central to his life's work. Like here you were where imagination became inquiry, became research. I'm just curious about how you hear it now that you retell it. And then those years you spent, as you call it, wandering after high school at 17. And kind of where do you place that now? How do you locate that? Well, I'm actually I'm actually a little bit surprised um, when I remember it, and it's a very clear memory. You know, I, I thought it, I remembered it for you know it was it sort of was a clear memory in the years following that. But then I did leave home, as you mentioned, and I did end up sleeping in fields. You know, and I did have to feel what that was like. And oddly, I sometimes sleep with a pillow now. I just got grew used to it. Um, but I think that. Um, there was always that sense I had that I wanted to get out and see what else had life had. I felt contained even when I was 10. I, I grew up in the city in Chicago and my family moved to the suburbs and no, no, uh, no aspersion on the suburbs, but I was very bored. And, um, <laughs> it, you know, and I ended up doing some self-destructive things after that, but ultimately I just left and did what I kind of always wanted to do, 
Um, and um, I don't really know why it was so clear uh, when I was 10, but it just kind of remarkably was. That's so interesting. So let's fast forward. I I spent the last several years studying and researching resilience or the literature on resilience and pouring through it. And I was repeatedly struck by your work, the way you've developed your studies and gathered data about trauma, loss, grief, resilience through studying huge swaths of populations, like very large data sets and many, many different contexts of trauma, like surprisingly different. And we'll get into that in a second, but also especially because your curiosities about these very big, profound human themes are rooted in, I guess, your earliest research in loss and grief and how people cope, which you wrote about in your previous book, The Other Side of Sadness, another fascinating title. So I'd like to explore these experiences of loss and grief and trauma and prolonged threat and where we are right now? Well, um, it really happened early on, as you mentioned, when I was first studying loss and, and bereavement. And I mean, when I first began to, to study that topic, I knew nothing about it. And I was offered a, a fairly nice position to do that kind of research. And I just finished my PhD. And it and I thought, well, that could be interesting. But when I began to look at the literature, it was all focused on how bad it was. And of course, it's, it's very painful, this experience, and it makes people feel very sad. And for some people, it's a, it's a lifetime of pain. They can't quite get over it. But it just seemed somehow the focus was wrong, that, that the, the message was everybody would suffer greatly. And the expectation was that, that this is what the experience would be if you didn't suffer greatly for a long period of time there was maybe something wrong or you're hiding your pain uh and people often mentioned since then that they felt like if they were actually doing okay that people were suspicious about it um and so most of that as i looked at the literature i realized most of those ideas had come from the clinical side of things it was really largely clinical evidence and what i mean by that it was largely uh from people who work with bereaved people, clinically, they can't get over the loss. And the people who don't, uh, who, who recover absolutely fine or, you know, move on and they feel okay, they've suffered, but they're going to get on with their lives, they don't go see therapists. They don't go see, uh, you know, clinical uh, mental health professionals. And so they would literally kind of not, not picked up on the radar. So we began the first, when we first began to design studies, we said, let's get a large swatch of people. Let's get everybody we can find who has been bereaved uh, at this time. We wanted people early on. And then let's follow them over time and see what we get. And the first, the very first study, we found immediately that the majority of those people we brought in were resilient. Where they showed basically they were continuing to function pretty well. And they did over time as well. And we kept getting larger and larger samples and following people for longer periods of time because at that time, the, the mental health world was, was very dubious of these findings. They, people just said, well, you're young, you must be doing something wrong. <laughs> and they weren't taken seriously. So, you know, we, we found also we get a lot of, we get a lot, we learn a lot from people if we follow large groups of people over time. We see other patterns as well. So mm -hmm. I've always, uh, you know, found that research enormously valuable. Is there a purpose for grief? 
Yes, there is actually. There seems like there is. You know, I, it's kind of hard to actually say that with with ultimate scientific confidence. But from everything we've seen about grief and everything we know about how sadness works, it seems that what grief does when we feel in, intense grief, uh, intense sadness, we turn inward, and it, we we have to recalibrate. We have to recalibrate our brain because our brain thinks this person that I've been so involved with over the years that I think about when they're not with them, you know, a lot of the time when we're with loved ones, we're not, we're actually, a lot of time when we, we are deeply attached to a loved one, we're not actually with them all the time, but they're very present in our minds. And we might think, oh, they would love that. Let me, maybe I'll tell them this story or, oh, I'll tell them what I saw today. Or we want to recount our day with that person. Or we, when we're not able to do that, we miss them. When that person dies, our brain still is, is still looking for them. It still wants to do those same things. And it takes a while. We have to, in a sense, recalibrate our brain. Uh, we might still see the person in public when they're not actually there or hear a sound and think that that's them coming home. The intense experience of grief, we turn inward and we allow our brain to do that work. We kind of stop paying attention to the outside world a little bit. And we, we kind of you know, go through this recalibration process. We we sit with that pain, and it helps us to to really get a sense. Okay, this is not go. This person's not coming back, and that we start to get used to a world where that person doesn't exist physically. Um, at the same time, we're doing that. You know, it's that's that's problematic from an evolutionary stand standpoint to not be paying attention. But it's problematic. I, mean, I live in New York City. I walk on the subway platform. I need to be paying attention. So we also, at the same time, we come out of that state. We go in and out of that state. It doesn't feel like it, but we do fluctuate in and out of that state just to make sure we're aware of the world around us. It's very effective. It's a very effective mechanism. And if I may take it's a couple more minutes, at the same time, we show that emotion in our face. We show sadness in our face, which tells people that I'm doing that, then maybe you want to look after me for a little while. And human yeah. beings do respond to sadness with empathy. Yes. And there's such a biochemistry to that. When I think about how we produce opioids and during sadness, we produce less, which all has this effect of having, having us seek out touch and hugs, which is exactly what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. There is definitely, an, uh, there's a lot going on in the brain, definitely. So talking about grief and bereavement and the loss of a loved one and, and Let's pull out to this massive experience with loss, all the loss of life. And I'm wondering whether you can speak for a moment to the national grief or the international grief, sort of this collective awareness of grief, maybe on a different level. Are you seeing that? It can be somewhat problematic to focus too much on like the broader context, because of, in, I think largely because it's everywhere in the media, and if you if you think about it too much, um, you end up constantly reminded of how bad things are. I mean, I think one of the things we found over the years when we when we try to understand what resilient people are doing and the processes they're using to kind of get through the event they have, it requires us to stay really focused on what's happening to them, to ourselves right now. 
right at this moment. And you asked about the future in a sense in the beginning. And I think, you know, we, we have to think about the future. We, we're very aware of the future with the pandemic. When will it end? When will vaccination kick in? When will lots of people get vaccinated? When will I be able to go back to work in my office? What will happen? You know, we, we worry about all those things. But when we say too worried on that, the broad picture, and especially the future, we end up feeling only threat because we think, well, this thing happened to me. And my life has changed, and it's not good, and the future will not be good. And actually, a symptom of one of the symptoms of PTSD is a kind of a distorted, you know, vague sense of the future, a kind of an inability to quite picture the future. And, um, but when we actually are, we, when people are actually dealing with something um, and, and working it out at that moment or that point in time, they're actually focusing on that moment, that point in time, and what they have to do in that moment, in that point in time. And we found when, when we're actually doing that, um, people actually feel okay. Like, I, I'm, I, I, okay, this hurts. It hurts a lot, but I'm still alive. I still have other people. I still, uh, I still have my life, and I will get by. Um, you know, and we stay we're too broad a focus. I mean, it's it's also good to think about it, but too too often too broad only makes us worry and feel threatened. Mm. You write in the book, any emotion, fear included, is adaptive only insofar as it does its job quickly. When fear is prolonged, it becomes unmoored from its original purpose. It diffuses into a general sense of foreboding, an apprehension about what is to come. And then this line, in fear, it becomes increasingly difficult, if not impossible, to sort out when our actions are effective and when they are not. Fear, I mean, all emotions, they pretty much, at least as, bad, as good as we understand them. You mentioned Lisa Feldman Barrett earlier, and she's been marvelous in her work to try to un unpack what emotions really are. And one of the things that emotions, we can say at a, at a biological level, they're very short-lived. And I think it, 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 there's some debate, we can actually say they're designed, but emotions seem to function uh, in very much a short-lived, they have a very short-lived purpose. They're dealing with what's happening to us right now, just as everything else I think we're doing. So emotions, like fear, is a reaction to something that's happening in the context. It's a very intense emotion, and it says there is danger right here. You know, our, our bodies, as I mentioned in the book, our brain can react to danger rapidly. It's pretty well known now. They can be rap very rapidly in kind of a crude way and really just a crude assessment of danger. But when our, our, our higher cortex, you know, when our consciousness, when we become aware of that, then we, we take in what's happening to us. But it's always focused just on this thing that's happened to us. And it's not adaptive, as I mentioned, if it, if it goes on for a longer time, because then we begin to just fearful and we begin to feel fearful in general. And as, then we begin to kind of lose sight of what is actually dangerous and what's not, uh, because fear is not designed to do that. Then that becomes worry. It becomes, um, you know, uh, some other form of dread. And it's the same thing with grief. And a wonderful uh, person for this kind of work is Mary Frances O'Connor, who's looked at the, the the neurochemistry, the neuroscience of grief. And people who can't get over the loss are kind of they have a, just a repeated cycle in the reward, the striatum, the reward networks of the brain. They're constantly wanting that person. 
And so initially, the, those reward systems are very adaptive, but if they continue on and they're constantly activated, then we, it just becomes pain. Wow. You talk about the focus on right now, which I find fascinating. And you bring this concept of the now, of potential, grounded in this present moment context that's also connected to a future reality. And it struck me that at this current popular this nexus of resilience building and resilient skills training in sort of all of the levels that we're seeing them, resilience doesn't seem like it's worth much to us if we can't connect it to a future with some degree of predictability. Is that right? Well, resilience, as I define it, is, and as I think the only way you can really actually rationally define it is as an outcome to an event. Resilience is what we, when somebody it's through something, they're resilient to it. And um, resilience, in a sense, puts you back, uh, in a sense, in the driver's seat. It puts you, you, you sort of write your life and so you can keep moving forward. You know, and you figure out if something can be changed, you change it. If it can't be changed, you live with it and move forward. So resilience is essentially, um, you know, it's it's future-oriented in that sense that it it puts us back on wherever we're, writes the boat, or writes the ship in a sense, so then we can keep moving forward and, and we have to take on another task when that comes. Mm-hmm. But it's, in your work, it strikes me that it's very important to predict resilience, that we can have resilient traits, that we can practice cultivating these traits, but that they don't pre- predict resilience. And I'm just wondering if you can just articulate why it's so important to be able to predict resilience. Yeah, well, so as as we've discussed already that I, I spent a lot of my career mapping these different trajectories with big data sets and little data sets, and we've consistently identified um, this pattern of, of people who go through an event, they're they're upset deeply, they're, they're distressed by it, and, and then usually not long afterwards, they're kind of able to get back on track to get themselves kind of and, you know, functioning at the level where they can still do the things in life, they can love and work, they can be close to people and continue to function. Um, And, you know, we find it's about two thirds of the population exposed to any kind of adversity. Normally two thirds, on average two thirds, I should say, show this resilient pattern across all kinds of events, some of the worst things we've studied. So naturally the question became, how do we know who was going to be in that in that group and who's not going to be in that group. And we you look at lots of different factors and you know we've looked at lots of different factors other people have as well and we consistently see a kind of a list of these factors and some of them have been you know got well known and they became known in the popular media as sort of the, the magic traits of resilience the five you know if you google this you come up with an endless array of websites touting you know the six factors of resilient people or the five factors of the, the five traits of highly resilient people. And, you know, I, I've actually mentioned this in the book. I'd spent about an hour and I came up with an almost endless list of these things. And, you know, some of them are, are have no scientific evidence, but, uh, you know, a handful of them have been shown to correlate with resilient outcomes. But then over the years, I, as I be, began to try to understand that, we realized if we, we measure a number of these things and try to predict who will be resilient. We still don't do a very good job. You know, we they do correlate, but the correlations are pretty small or 
you know, in, 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 in just whatever terms we want to put it, they're only really capturing a very small piece of the pie. So we can try to build, you know, a certain quality um, and it's possible to do that, but we're only going to move the needle just a little bit. So I began to wonder why is that? And what, what I began to realize over time is that any trait, any behavior, it really in, in human beings and animals, it, across the natural world, even in cellular creatures, any trait or quality has both costs and benefits. Things have a things do something good, but they always have a limitation to it. That's just true throughout the natural world, and it's true with humans as well. You know, say you know, uh, seeking out other people for support is generally a pretty good thing, but sometimes it's not. Especially when you're dealing with something major, sometimes you need to isolate yourself, or sometimes you're just not. In a, in, a, in a mental state to talk with other people. You need to like work something out or you need to sit, reflect. And some things that we think about as not healthy, like suppressing emotions, can be very healthy in some situations. And that, so what goes hand in hand with that is the fact that situations, situations are not the same. You know, we tend to think of, of uh, traumatic events. For, let me, if I can use that word, traumatic events is kind of a category of events. And if you, you have one of these events, you're going to be traumatized. And that's a kind of an essentialist idea that, you know, these events just exist in nature and we discovered them. And there's a certain number of things that are traumatic and they're traumatic for anybody. And if you have one, you're, you, you better look out. But in fact, um, these events, even if we make a category, you can make any category that you wish, there are going to be tremendous variability within that category. And even every event, every event is personal also. The particular event that happened to us is going to be different than the particular event that happened to another person. And it's going to be different over time. How we deal with it is going to be different over time. Sometimes something happens, it's bad, but you pick up the pieces, you take stock and you move on. Sometimes something happens to us and it's going to take a while and it's going to have lasting consequences. Maybe it's going to affect, affect other portions of our life. Maybe it's going to cause pain in different ways over time. And so dealing with those events requires that we adapt each time and use what's going to work in that situation. There is no event, there is no trait, no characteristic that works every time. And that just doesn't, the, the world isn't like that. So that's what we've been studying now. We're trying to figure that out. We actually, you know, and I have some pretty good ideas about what that is. And we've done other work to, to try to explain that. That's that um, is all in, in the book. Yes. I want to deep dive into resilience and all that you bring forward in the book, but I want to touch on something, this concept of time, this, this very important factor of time that you refer to a lot and you just referred to now. Time is such an integral piece, not as a construct, but time as development, as experience, as growth. So you study trajectories over time. Why is time so important? Well, it's important in a number of ways. It's important for this, as you mentioned, the trajectory work, because people, there are some trajectories that change over time. The resilient trajectory tends not to, right? It tends to be relatively flat after this event, but then there are other trajectories of people who are doing poorly and they get better. There are people who are doing poorly and don't get better. There's even a trajectory when we, we did longitudinal work that um, or prospective work, I'm sorry, I should say, when we have actually have information on people before an event happens, 
that some people are doing very poorly before an event and something really horrible happens and they're doing much better afterwards. But time is also personal. When I'm dealing, when anybody is dealing with a very specific, um, very threatening, very um, you know, unforgettable kind of event, which a lot of these events are, something happens and boy, it's, it feels very bad the minute it happens and your life's going to be changed and it is, you know, for a period of time anyway. And even if a person is getting over that event pretty well um, and sort of resolved it and, you know, they, 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 under, they found a way to deal with it and their, their life is back on track, they're not going to forget that event. They're going to remember it very well. And over time, they will still tend to remember it. And maybe that will teach there's a lesson to be learned there or there's some, something to learn from that event. Um, and immediately after one of these events, we have intrusive thoughts. We tend to have intrusive thoughts. Almost everybody does if we're highly distressed. You know, the event, the event pops into our mind when we don't want to be thinking about mm -hmm. it. We'd rather not think about what just happened, but there it is. We're thinking about it. When we dream, we sometimes, when we sleep, we sometimes have nightmares about the event. All those, I think it's fair to say that those are fairly adaptive mechanisms of the human mind, and it allows us to you could say grow, and I think it just allows us to get a little smarter or you know learn from the event. And sometimes that that happens over time because we get more and more distance of it, and then we realize something about it. Talk a little bit about the research and what you discovered about PTSD. Maybe defining PTSD, sort of this, um, the ways in which trauma and PTSD are these states with, as you call them, fuzzy boundaries that unfold and change over time um, when traumatic stress doesn't go away. So maybe touch on that a bit so we can situate PTSD in relationship to trauma, and then we can talk about that. PTSD is post-traumatic stress disorder, and it's defined as essentially a disorder. It's, it's essentially a traumatic experience that a person uh, is, is unable to really function afterwards. It's post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, I think PTSD is, is, is kind of a, it's, it's, it's a fairly real thing, or, uh, you know, an extreme trauma reaction is a very real thing. And there are people who've gone through what, what I like to refer to them as potentially traumatic events. They've gone through a potentially traumatic event, and they can't get over it. They, they're nightmares about it. They're 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 shaken. They're frightened of everything. They're, they're they see danger in different places, and they keep being reminded of the event. And they have flashbacks that are just debilitating because this happened, say, six months ago, and they're still feeling like it just happened. That's real. What what's a little fuzzy is the 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 category of what we call PTSD because I think a lot of people don't quite realize or may not realize that PTSD is kind of an invented category. Um, extreme trauma is not an extreme reaction that people can't get over is not something we've invented, but the category of PTSD is created by a committee of people to kind of capture that. And that was very important and it is very important for treatment. We need to be able to say, okay, this person has an extreme rea trauma reaction, they can't get over it. And you know, another person will say, well, they seem pretty bad, but how do you know? Another mental health professional will say, well, they meet the criteria for this category. Mm. So the category is important in that sense. But over time, and that's really what these categories, categories are for. But I always think that diagnostic, psychiatric diagnostic categories are social constructs that masquerade as scientific constructs. 
They're not very scientific. The category itself, as I've mentioned, is fuzzy, um, and it um, and it's led to a lot of debate and a lot of confusion. Um, one of the reasons I do trajectory research is I just I don't need the category. I map different patterns. We always see a pattern of people who have been through an event and they have elevated PTSD symptoms and they, it won't go away. Mm-hmm. You know, so we have just measured the various symptoms. Well, I was pretty stunned to read talking about symptoms. We're used to, as a society, reading a list of symptoms that are maybe five to 10, maybe 12, I don't know, maybe 20 symptoms. The number of possible PTSD symptom combinations now stands at? It stands at 636,136, uh, I don't know, it's something like 636,000 something. So what does that actually mean? I mean, because that sounds absurd, and yet, wow, that kind of is a revelation to me. Yeah, it, it is kind of absurd, but it's true. Mm-hmm. It comes from work that uh, a, a brilliant guy, Isaac Elter Levy, he was my student. I was just graced that he was my student. He's quite brilliant. He's now a professor at NYU, and he works in, in, the, in doing all kinds of things with tech companies. And he's brilliant. He's a computational master genius. And he had written this paper along with Richard Bryant, who's a famous trauma researcher, where they just looked at the diagnosis. And so the reason PTSD is so 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 heterogeneous, as I would say, so so many different combinations, is that the diagnosis itself has four subcategories. And it's a little bit of a menu. Like you so you have one category, you need to have at least three of the symptoms in this category. Another one in the category, another category you need to have maybe two of the symptoms. Another category, one symptom of these and, you know, two of these. And there are four categories like that. Mm. So when when you make a diagnosis that complicated, the number of permutations you can have is almost endless. I get it. You know, yeah. And there's a famous story. People may know the story of the the guy who invented the, the chessboard. It's basically the story of a sultan, a king. You can use any kind of you know variation of this. And the, the guy invents a chessboard, and, and the, the king is delighted. So he says, send, send this man to me. And he says, I just you, you are a genius. I love this game. I want to reward you. You can have anything you want. And the, the inventor says, I want one grain of rice doubled on each square. And the, the king is, looks at his advisors, and they just say, what? I thought this guy was a genius. Maybe he's a maybe he's an idiot because that's not you know that's all you want. You can have anything in my kingdom. I want one grain of rice doubled on each square. <laughs> and so the king he goes away, and then about a few days later, the king smirks to his you know his advisor as well. That was weird. And you know a couple of days later, the the treasurer comes to the king and says, "Sire, we're in big trouble because if you double every grain of rice on that that chessboard, by the time." Um, we get to the last square, there's 64 squares. It's an astronomical number of, of, of uh, grains of rice. So large, in fact, we couldn't grow that much rice in 10 years. You've bankrupt the kingdom, sire. And in fact, if you doubled the, the grains of rice 64 times, it is an astronomical number that you end up with. And that's just simply the way, the way combinations work. And when my, my colleague just looked at the diagnosis, that's what he found, mm. a really almost preposterous number of possible combinations. It does, but it does get us thinking, right? And coming back to this concept of social constructs, I think 
back to, you know, you mentioned that you prefer potentially traumatic event. And I think that's really interesting, I guess, hence the title, which you'll explain in a moment. But when I think to the word trauma and just the trajectory of that word and how it's evolved, you know, you write in the book how back in the 1600s, it was thought of as an acute physical insult in the field of medicine, that World War I, it was thought of as shell shock. And then when the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, DSM-1, you know, came out, the DSM-2, it was thought of as a gross stress reaction. It was defined by its transience. And, and then eventually in 1968, you write that trauma was then called an adjustment reaction to adult life, which I think is probably the funniest. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. what? shouldn't that just be anything? It's an adjustment reaction to adult life. Wait till I tell my sons who might be saying, ma, ma, it's just an adjustment reaction to adult life. But my point is that I guess I understand why you kind of issue the word trauma, like eh, trauma. Let's talk about potentially traumatic events, because what does trauma really mean then in that context? Well, the word trauma, right. The word trauma is very ambiguous because um, it has a very specific meaning in the, in the DSM, mm -hmm. in, the, in the, the, the diagnostic Bible. And in fact, the other diagnostic system, which is actually really widespread throughout the world, the International Classification of Disorders, yeah, the ICD, the mm -hmm. um, they are, they, they're very specific about it. They kind of say a traumatic event is one of these things. Mm -hmm. And they list a bunch of really severe events. So don't tell me, you know, you spilled coffee on yourself and now you're traumatized because right. it's not on the list, you know. And so the, the DSM tries to be more um, inclusive and, and they end up, it's a Pandora's box that can't, a Pandora's, you know, box, they can't put the cat back in the box. Um, but the word itself, I mean, it, in a way, the diagnostic category is useful, as I mentioned before, because there is something real about severe trauma. Yes. Um, but I mean, I don't know. I don't, in my personal life, I've never, you know, thought I needed to, you know, when I'm talking with someone who seems traumatized to me, I've never had to, you know, give them the, the, the schedule of the disorder and count the symptoms that you just, and in fact, most, a lot of therapists in their private lives, when they encounter someone who's been traumatized, they don't check to see if they meet the diagnostic category. They just give them a PTSD diagnosis mm. um, because it's just obvious it's something like that. And that's really what it is. It's something like extreme post-traumatic stress. And I think it we, we would we'd all be easier if we just said, okay, this diagnostic category is just an arbitrary, it is arbitrary. Yeah. It's an arbitrary category that seems to capture, you know, a lot of people. That's what we're using. Why do you prefer PTE, potentially traumatic event? And what does the end of trauma signify for you as a book title? Well, I use the word potentially traumatic or PTE because Events are not traumatic. Events are potentially traumatic because they're not traumatic for everybody. Um, you know, somebody was just talking with me about 9-11 and asked about what about all the people that were in the building and got out? And, you know, they're all, how do they deal with the lasting trauma? And, and I quickly said, well, the, most of, the majority were not traumatized, mm -hmm. as, 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 as shocking as that might be to people. Plenty of people were like 30%, which is 30% of the people who were in the building and got out were traumatized, which is an enormous number of people. It is. And then you write that six months later, that number dropped 
precipitously. The number dropped for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. the number dropped for a lot of people because they, you know, they met the diagnosis at one point, but later, six months later, um, they were not suffering anymore mm-hmm. or suffering in the same way. Mm-hmm. So let's touch on this idea where you talked about colloquializing, right? We So let's talk about how colloquializing trauma also, by the same token, is colloquializing resilience. I mean, in our society, certainly through media messaging and, I guess, public perception or popular opinion, as you said, somebody dropping coffee saying, I was traumatized, there is a lot of mainstreaming of the term trauma. And certainly a lot of organizations and groups and sort of the zeitgeist of institutions, schools, et cetera, are talking more and more about becoming trauma literate, trauma informed, trauma sensitive. And I don't hear as much around resilience as though they're separate as though trauma and resilience were two separate things, not interconnected, intricately connected in mind-body. And so I want to get into resilience here as the sort of the, um, the DNA of trauma and thinking about some of the ways that we need to maybe reframe as we start to talk about this wonderful framework you lay out in the book. So this idea of bouncing back, because we keep hearing about it. If you, you know, as I ask a bunch of different people, say, what is resilience? I say, the ability to bounce back after adversity. And yet I speak to people who work with people in prolonged threat or in war zones or in post-conflict settings for whom there's nothing to bounce back to. There is no safety to go back to. But they still work with these groups of people, these populations, 70 million people of the world uh, are displaced. There are so many people living in these in these settings. And I still hear this language about finding our way back. And it isn't used in that colloquial sense. It's used more in terms of agency and recovery or a kind of a, a remerging with ourselves from a place of disembodiment or, or a sense of hopelessness back to a sense of, I can feel my extremities again. I feel a sense of agency, even if it's right now. So talk a little about this idea of resilience as maybe a mistaken notion in this Western view anyway, that it is invulnerability or that it is a a fierce uh, quality of invincibility um, and how we maybe glorify resilience mistakenly um, and destructively as some kind of category reserved for this elite group of humans, like it's some sort of extraordinary trait when it's not. Oh, great. Well, there's, there's, there's a lot in um, what you just said. Um, and I, I, I think I can, can break it down a little bit, particularly your last question about um, the idea that people are resilient, mm-hmm. um, which I think is, is, is mostly incorrect. And I also wanted to just mention earlier, you meant trauma-informed, mm-hmm. that phrase. And I really, um, I, don't, I don't mean to offend anybody when I say this, because I'm sure I might offend somebody, but um, sorry about that. But um, I really dislike that passionately, that mm, phrase. Tell me why. Because it, it, it implies, um, it's based on, I think, a misconception about the ubiquity of trauma, that it's assumed that there are lots and lots of traumatized people. It also assumes that we carry around 
un, uh, we carry around traumas with us. Often we don't know about them, or often they're vague things that happen to us that are that are. Um, I think the word is a, is about sort of being sensitive to that. The same thing with the phrase trigger warnings. Mm. And trigger, trigger warnings, there's the, the evidence is now pretty clear. Trigger warnings, whatever they're intended to do, do not work. And sometimes they make people worse because they, it's assumption, again, that we all are carrying around these hidden traumas and triggers, and that's just not the case. Empirically, it's not the case. When people are traumatized seriously, they know exactly what happened. They don't forget it, right? They know it. You know, when somebody has been seriously traumatized, if they have PTSD, they, they're struggling. And that's really obvious. But most people are not traumatized. Most people walking around are not traumatized. And the idea that we have to be sensitive to these hidden traumas is really, I, I mean, it's just, it's completely false on every level. Mm. Um, and it's problematic, I think. So this really great, emphasis, this rush to all this programming, which I find confusing myself, although I, I'm trying to parse through it because I find it interesting to share with people what some of the processes going on in terms of stress response patterns and, you know, letting people know a little bit about what's happening inside them, I think is so key. But it is hard to figure out what frameworks to use because we can mistakenly and unwittingly keep pathologizing trauma. Oh, I think so. You know, when, when we interview people about their past, which we, 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 you know, there's a common thing in, in mental health research to give people a list of events they've experienced and say, have you ever experienced any of these? And there's all kinds of, right. you know, nasty things out there. A gun pulled on you, robbed, assaulted, in a, injured in an accident. And when we ask people about those things, we, we now only do that in a detailed interview. And so it's time consuming, but it's the only way to really do it. But we would ask people, you know, those lists, have you been through one of these, one of these, have you ever had a gun pulled on you? No, you know, no, I don't remember ever having a gun pulled on me. And then later, if we're doing another kind of interview, we do a lot of interviews in my research, despite all the other stuff. And in the interviews, we ask people to tell us their story about something. Tell us what happened. Mm -hmm. What was it like? And tell us more about, you know, your past or something like that in detail. And when we're doing that, then people suddenly remember some of these events. Oh, wait, wait. Now I remember a, a gun was pulled on me once. Twice, in fact, mm -hmm. I had a gun pulled on me. And they tell us when and how and why. Never in the like 25 years of doing that research has anybody suddenly, you know, had a, uh, a hidden traumatic reaction, you know, suddenly been, you know, um, thrust into the past and suffering and, you know, upset. It's never happened. And because those were events that happened to them, and they were probably at the time kind of distressed or disturbed, and then they moved on, mm. you know, and they, it just was another event in their life. It, it, and at first we were puzzled by that, but that's really just what happens. People are exposed actually to a lot of highly versus events. And most of the time, they're not traumatized and they move on. So interesting. How important have you found storytelling, the allowing people to tell their story? Like when you say, tell us what happened. And I'm sure yeah. you have found ways over the decades of this incredibly detailed work and rigorous work to, to really be sensitive to how you ask those questions and to the scenarios and settings in which people feel comfortable enough to do so. 
And absolutely right. And so, but how, what is the power of storytelling? Cause we certainly see that there is some really generative impact to being heard. Yeah, well, we, we always do this in, in, when we're doing any kind of longitudinal study. I mean, some of the studies I talked about in the book were from large data sets that we got our hands on. You know, and there are a lot of publicly available data sets so we, to do this kind of work. But often when I'm running a longitudinal study of my own, which we have, I've done my whole career, it's very time consuming, but we bring people to our site, to our offices, to our laboratory, but we always do kind of an open-ended interview that lasts anywhere from 20 minutes to say 45 minutes. And we ask a number of specific questions. And as you mentioned, as you as you asked, we are very careful in the way we do this. We do a lot of training, mm. but we're going to listen very carefully. We don't know everything about these events. So we want to hear what your story is. What happened to you from your perspective? There's no right or wrong answers. Just tell us about mm. it. And we'll give you, you know, sometimes six minutes, sometimes 10 minutes. After 9-11, we gave people a half hour to tell us their story. And we just said, we're going to listen. We're not going to say much because we just want to hear your story from your perspective. But we're going to be listening very closely. And then we ask people to talk. And it's on film. Sometimes they have physiological sensors attached to them. They get used to that. And we have done this now. Sometimes, as I said, it's quite elaborate. And we've done this in every study I've ever done, every longitudinal study I've ever conducted. We get a lot of data. But also, people really, uh, I think it's really meaningful for them. And even when we're not sure we're going to use this kind of data, we do it anyway. We, do, we bring people in. Um, people really like to do it because they're talking to mental health professionals. And we explain to them, we really want to know what, ha- what your perspective on this. Mm-hmm. We don't know everything. Tell us. We're not judging you. We want you to tell us. And it's very powerful for people. Mm. Uh, and we would sometimes do that again a year later. We find out all kinds of, we, you know, I think it's rewarding for people. They come back to do it. But we also learn a lot from doing this. Yes, I would imagine. You write in the book this phrase, the right behavior in the right situation at the right time, which I thought was such a succinct way of framing what you call pragmatic coping. And I love how you just kind of, took off your science hat for a second and said, whatever it takes. <laughs> I just love the whatever it takes. And it, it reminded me of how years ago, um, when my kids were little, I, I I thought of this whatever it takes as WIT, like your wits, gathering your wits. And yeah. I thought this idea of situation-specific coping, it was such an eye-opener for me um, because situating all this research in loss and grief bereavement and trauma, potentially traumatic events and ways in which people have coped. And then all of what you unpack about resilience in this book, The End of Trauma. And you talk about a very key word because I found myself about halfway through and it was just a page turner. And I was thinking, gosh, you know, traumatic stress can alter how we see, and it can dampen our self-regulatory capacities. It can reduce access to the prefrontal cortex and all that. And so it can be tough to modulate fear. It can be tough for us to see what's really in front of us. So I kept thinking to myself, how do we practice a sort of different capacities that help us when we are in these states of fight, flight, freeze, or immobilized in, in, in other states? And how do we work our way back to this more conscious state of engagement? And then bam, you go, hey, we need 
flexibility. And I thought, wow, then you really started unpacking this concept of a flexibility mindset. And you say flexibility, which is distinct from resilience, is the process we use to adapt ourselves to traumatic stress so we can find our way to resilience. There's an assumption, you know, that will, people will automatically make, and I don't mean your listeners necessarily, but maybe in the media or wherever that, okay, flexibility makes you resilient. So you got to be flexible. And of course, that's correct, I think. But it's the assumption that if you're flexible, boom, you're done. That's not correct. Flexibility is is the ability or the, the, the mechanism, the process by which we adapt and utilize the other things that we have at our disposal. So um, we, you know, the word flexibility is just like trauma and resilience. It can mean a, a lot of different things to a lot of people, sure. and it will will soon mean more things to people because it's, it's becoming popularized. But in this book, we've studied it scientifically, and we use we initially called it regulatory flexibility. Now we, you know, we just call it flexibility because it's easier. Mm-hmm. But it has a very specific meaning here. Mm-hmm. And the meaning is it has these three components and um, it has, a, what you mentioned, there's a mindset that goes along with it, a kind of a way that, um, that uh, we can think about events that helps us to get into flexibility. And it's the tools that we utilize because we have all the, we have a very different situation than the other thing, you know, with the unique situation. And we know that all these different you know, behaviors, you know, they're, they're useful sometimes and not others. So which one is going to be useful now? And there is no immediately right answer. All we can do is make our best guess. Mm-hmm. And we try something and then we see if it works. And if it doesn't work, we try something else. That's really just, you know, that's, the, that's it in a nutshell. So these three domains that you talk about in the flexibility mindset, it you say that this these three, optimism, which is kind of an optimism about the future, I guess, to put it simply, mm-hmm. a confidence in our own coping ability. Uh, and I wondered if that confidence was also kind of an inner knowing, like this kind of sense we have, like, I, this is so hard, but I know I'm going to be okay. Um, and then um, the challenge orientation, which is a willingness to think think about threat or problems as challenges. You say that if we consider this as a a frame of mind, if if you will, that this is from here, this is how we end up finding adaptive solutions. Like you said, it's not boom, we're done. And we live in a boom, we're done society, that's for sure. (laughs) Um, But talk a bit about this optimism, confidence, and challenge orientation trilogy here. And then using this as a framework, even in the face of indefinite challenge, this how long can I do this idea that helps us reframe it. I, I struggled a little bit when I was thinking about how to present this book, because um, these are not necessarily, you know, like the golden pieces of the mindset, but they seem to work better than anything else we've studied. But the key thing is, well, optimism makes us think, you know, the future will be okay. Right now it's not, but it'll be okay. It's always okay. It'll be okay. And the confidence in coping is really the sense, you know, that I, I, I can do this. I've done it before. And, and the challenge orientation is just, you know, it's not focusing on the threat so much. Instead, shifting back and thinking, 
okay, all right, it did ha- it happened. It's it's horrible, right? But it happened. What do I need to do now? And those three things, you know, we can cultivate those things. You know, there's some research showing we can cultivate them. I have some examples in the book of using self-talk to get ourselves thinking that way. Yes. And we can do that. We can do that when we're not actually facing a, a you know a high a big problem in our lives. It's probably be- it's better to do that actually when we can, which is I spent a, a little bit of time on that in the book that we can kind of begin to think. Well, I, I coped with these other things. I guess I'm pretty good at coping, mm. you know, and and you know, et cetera. And when the, something happens to us, we need to remind ourselves. You know, it's going to be okay. And even if it's changed my life forever. I, I'll be okay still. I'll find a way to be okay. And, you know, I've dealt with a lot of things in the past, so I'll just deal with this. And, you know, let me dig in and ask, what do I need to do here? And those three things together seem to work synergistically. They kind of feed off each other. When we're optimistic, yeah. it's worth thinking about how we cope. It's worth focusing on the challenge. And when we focus on the challenge, it's worth thinking about well, God, I've done it before. I guess I'm. I guess I'm capable of this. And when I think I'm capable of it, then we become more optimistic. I said they feed off each other, and they create this mindset, which I call the flexibility mindset. And I think the key thing is that we cultivate that mindset, that we get ourselves into that mindset. However, we do it. I mean, these three things seem to work best. Yeah. But you know, they're not the golden nuggets. They're the most likely routes to this mindset. We need to get us get ourselves in a way create a a way of thinking that says, all right, it happened. It's bothering me. I'm not happy. It's starting to interfere with my life, but it'll be okay. I can do it, et cetera. What do I need to do? And that also pulls us away from this threatening future I was talking about earlier and brings us back to, if I'm solving this problem right now, Mm. and by solving this problem, we also get a sense that, oh, I I can kind of get a get a grip on this problem that maybe will be okay, you know, and, and I'll go on to the next thing. Yeah. And even if we can't get in the moment, get to the, it will be okay. And if, even if we've never experienced what we've experienced, it is, I'm really appreciating what you're saying about finding a way to get to that way of thinking. And I think that is where we come to this huge potential of now, this present moment awareness. You talk about a flexibility sequence that I really appreciated you unfolding in the book. Um, and I really do appreciate the humility with which you lay out these, the the mindset, this sort of trilogy saying, look, this is not, you know, this isn't the boom, you're done. And certainly this is, this isn't as simple as it sounds. It's more complex and it is. So you talk about this sequence that we can cycle. So let's say I was just thinking to myself, okay, let's say um, there is a scenario in which um, we are feeling gripped, gripped by threat, and we we are in a what people might colloquially call a rut, and we just feel like we're in a, a deep dark place, and we don't want to reach out, and we're having a lot of negative thoughts. And I was thinking the sequence you lay out as an invitation to question feels so accessible, even in that dense, dark space. And you say, first, context sensitivity, which is such a now process. It's what is happening to me? What is bothering me right now? Context sensitivity is the first step in this sequence. So yeah. we we and it's a, the assumption here is that we've kind of already you know focused a little bit on the event. We we're thinking, okay, what do I you know I, I am thinking about the I'm in a mindset to do this. Let's do it. And um, the first thing we need to do is kind of 
take stock of what's actually happening. You know, what happened, what's happening now? You know, what in this moment is the problem? You know, what, what am I feeling this way? What's happened to me? Why am I feeling this way? Once we ask those questions and get a sense of the answer, we then have a sense of what we need to do. What I need to do is this. I need to stop thinking about this for a little bit, or I need to get out of the house, or I need to, um, you know, I need to somehow um, find a way to keep these certain reactions from interfering with other parts of my life or whatever that problem might be. Um, but we need to typically do that. We don't typically do that because the traumatic events, these events that really disturb us, that really impact us, we're typically kind of lost in the, how bad it is and what's happening to us. And we're not actually paying attention to, to what is actually happening to us. Well, and also because I hear you know, so many people say they don't, you know, once once we have been gripped by a potentially traumatic event and have such a negative, strong impact, it's this sense of how do you tap into and take stock of context and be sensitive to context when you don't feel safe in your body? Well, we are all able to do this. We've learned this since we were children. You know, when we when we're small children, you know, there's the, the, anybody who's a parent knows this classic phrase, use your inside voice here. Right. And tell children, you can't be yelling here. You have to use your inside voice. And, you know, in school with their parents, with caretakers, with caregivers, we're always being told we have to behave differently here. now. Mm. OK, this is a certain this is a sacred place or this is a funeral or this is a this is, you know, somebody else's house. You can't run around here. You know, we have to. We, so we're being told this is a different context. Context. We right. gradually learn to start taking stock of context as we get older becomes more and more automatic. Mm. And I think as adults, we not, we're not really typically paying attention to context. We do it so well. And partly what, hap- what I'm suggesting and what we need to do when we're feeling really upset by an event that happens, we then at some point need to say, okay, I'm going to keep pushing these thoughts away, but, I, I, but we're going to keep having those thoughts because that's what intrusive thoughts are. Right. The, our, our mind keeps saying, you thinking about this, think about it, you know. And I mean, it's really our brain doing this. The information is there in our bodies. And, I'm, and I, I think it's a good argument to say we, we're capable of doing this because we do it all the time. You know, if, if, if I can tell a little story. Yeah. When I was young, I had a very serious bout of what people call vertigo. My, my ear would, would um, my left ear would just cause some severe shift in my balance and I would fall over. And I was, I was a, um, a student at the time and I was very worried about this. So I went to, a, a, you know, to the hospital to see what they could tell me. And they put me on a table, strapped me down, put a red light on the ceiling, and then flooded my left ear with cold water, which brought on intense dizziness. And what I saw when that happened was I saw the, left, the, the red light on the ceiling begin to move to the right, and then I saw it snap back. Hmm. And then it started moving to the right, and it snapped back. What I learned was that's my ear telling my brain, you're moving. And my brain, you know, can see the world around it and says, no, you're not, and snaps it back. And that's what my brain was doing. I never knew that because when those attacks of dizziness happened, I was panicking. So by being in a situation where you're, you're actually paying attention, you begin to see what's actually happening and you can begin to kind of make sense of it and do something with it. And when we're, when we're in a situation we've been really disturbed we can take stock Hmm. we just have to do that we have to do it ourselves we have to start paying attention that's a very powerful story i'm glad you shared it because what came up for me was that you're 
essentially saying to us, we need to trust ourselves. We need to trust in our own unseen internal resources. There's a lot in there that we're already equipped with. Yes, absolutely. You talk about context sensitivity as the first step, and then what you term repertoire, which isn't it just a sense of like, well, what can I do now? What are the things I can do? What are my coping yeah. strategies? Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So when we're, when we're paying attention to the context, we get a sense of what, I, what we need to do. You know, that we, or we, take, we may make our best guess what we need to do, but then we have to ask ourselves, but of, of what I need to do, what do I have at my disposal that I can use? Mm-hmm. What am I actually have some facility? What do I typically use? What am I good at? You know, and then that, that's our repertoire. Mm-hmm. You know, we can always expand our repertoire anytime. Mm-hmm. But when we're coping with a serious event, we, we have to just take stock of what we have. That's what we're going to be most effective at. Mm-hmm. So we, we from the, isn't that like looking in your toolbox? Your okay, toolbox, yeah. I need to fix this thing. What do I have in my toolbox? Right. So this is where we go. A wrench doesn't work if I need a hammer. I mean, to use the toolbox. Right. And we become more discerning. So that practicing context sensitivity and repertoire, step one, step two, helps us to become more discerning and maybe helps us to appraise with more accuracy. Do I have that right? Yes, exactly. And then we move to the third step of the sequence, which you called feedback responsiveness, feedback monitoring. Um, we play around with different names, and there's very little work on this research-wise. But it, the, the work that we've done, as well as we've done, point to this pretty clearly. That we try something. You know, this is about making your best estimate. Nobody's, you know, going to always get it right. Nobody's going to read the context exactly right. Nobody is going to always pick the right tool from the toolbox. If we can stay with that metaphor, and then we pay attention to the consequences of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, I tried to, you know talk to all my friends about this, contact all my friends and, and tell them about this. And maybe sometimes that works great. But in this particular case, I just started feeling kind of lousy. Okay, so that's not the right tool. The feedback is it didn't really work. So we then try something else, mm-hmm. right? With something else in a repertoire that might be more effective. Mm-hmm. And we pay attention to the consequences. And typically for a disturbing, a really difficult event, we're going to cycle through this process a number of times. Mm-hmm. And we'll find that one tool worked at the beginning, maybe it doesn't work so well now, et cetera. You know, it's a very much, you know, it's a process of discovery in a sense. Yes. And, and we're all capable of that. Yes. We're, we're, a lot of people are not going to have the right answers. Most people are not going to have the right answers to everything, but we're capable of, of trying things and working it out and discovering Yeah. I mean, and discovery for me really resonates because that's such a healing pathway. Discovery is exciting. And it certainly doesn't feel exciting when we're in a dark place. But if we can get incrementally into a a cycle of thinking, a practice of thinking, where we can begin to discover and have those insights, um, yeah. Man, we that if that isn't a, a sign of our internal growth, it also struck me that this is these corrective strategies are these self-corrective strategies. Do I need to adjust my response? Should I try another strategy? What's not working? Why? We're so used to other people correcting us, and oh my God. right something so. Totally. I mean, we're re- we're used to reading about these are the traits you need to have. These are the things you need to do, and I personally have experienced this, you know, I mean, as I was developing these, these ideas, it was natural that I would try it out of my own life, you know, I mean, and sometimes something would be, I'd be dealing with something 
really difficult. You know, I live in New York, things happen. I have children and a family, you know, I have a wife and I have a mother. My mother was, was very sick during COVID. You know, you, you, when you're coping with stuff, I would like think actually about this sequence. And at some point I had, I would have these very positive reactions like, wow, mm-hmm. I'm actually going to be able to deal with this and keep living my life. Absolutely. Even though this bad thing is happening right now, I'm basically okay, which is the most important thing, right? And, I, and there's that, that sense of discovery comes with it kind of a, I wouldn't say exhilaration, but it comes with a, quite a sense of, I can do this. You know, I'm actually capable of doing this. Absolutely. I have been exploring this sequence really deeply. And I had a kind of a, this was my own revelation. I, tell me what this sounds like to you. I feel like as I was cycling through context sensitivity and the questions that came up for me and how I responded to them over time, and then looking into my own repertoire and questioning those things and having this relationship with myself, this conversation, then this feedback monitoring of saying, this isn't working and why, how do I know it's not working and what understanding some of the nuances of it as I kept cycling and cycling through this over the last couple of weeks. I got this sense that this is has almost like a fractal quality. It's like it's it's like the effect of all these things cultivating each other and then creating sequences of sequences and I just felt like there's something immersive and comforting and reassuring about this that that I tapped into myself this idea of engaging with myself on this level that was really generative. Yeah. Well, I think, and that's very true. You get a sense. I mean, I, I think this is the one of the things I was hoping to achieve with this book. Basically, what this sequence is doing is it's, or this work is doing, I think is, is I, I, I hope this is not too audacious to say this, but it's essentially kind of naming what most people do already. Mm. Um, and, and because we don't, know we do it, we're kind of helpless in a way sometimes. Mm-hmm. And this is a way of saying, look, you have all these tools, you have all these skills already. And in fact, we've done some research um, looking at you know groups of people and found that um, the majority were either moderately good or very good at these skills. Um, all three of them. Already. You know? Yeah, already. But we, you know, I don't think people know. We just, we yeah. do this by asking a lot of tricky questions and, you know, we, we figure out ways, we, we have experiments that, that measure people's ability to do these things. And then we figure out questions that predict the experiments. You know, we, we, we do all the scientific validation. And then we did that. We found that, that most people already can do this. And when, it, when I tell people that, I talk to people about flexibility, most people say, gosh, I have no idea if I'm flexible or not. Because we just don't know. We, we're, a lot of these things come from just living. Mm-hmm. So I think by, by sort of laying it out and saying, here's actually what happens. Most people are resilient. It shouldn't be surprising. And I, I was hoping, you know, I wasn't surprised, um, uh, maybe a little bit, when we found that most people are already naturally flexible because most people are resilient. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. And so this is kind of a way of saying, here's actually what's happening during this time and what you're probably doing and and you're going to repeat through these things. So now we have a better sense of, okay, I can actually name it. I can, I can remember it and I can use it more deliberately. 
Yes. So it'll be like exercise. Yeah. Well, I find the naming calming. And you write in the book, if we have no awareness of whether something is helping us, we can't correct it or even deliberately keep yeah. doing it. And so this idea of naming is so powerful. I also thought it was interesting that you wrote that we learn more effectively when we incorporate social feedback and that depressed people tend to overreact to social feedback, which makes me wonder, I wanted to ask you, how important is who we surround ourselves with? Oh, gosh. Well, I think that's, we can't help really who we, sur I mean, again, I live in New York, you get on the subway, I can have no control over who is on the subway, unfortunately. Um, but I think uh, social feedback is available anywhere, anytime. You know, so if I'm trying, say I'm having a lot of distress, I'm feeling very uneasy because of something that happened. And I go in a place with a lot of people like the subway or, you know, a, a shopping location, a store or a shopping mall or something. And I am, I can tell kind of, you know, I try to talk to somebody in the store or on the subway or whatever. And there you could tell that from them that I don't look like I'm doing well. You know, they may even ask me, are you okay? Or, you know, you could just tell. Mm -hmm. And that's the feedback. That's social feedback. And that tells us, or say, a, an example I often use is, is um, on an airplane. You know, a lot of people get extremely upset or distressed by, by high levels of turbulence. And I've had those experiences in my life. Me too. You know, airplane flying is just weird. You know? <laughs> but, you know, then you see, I always look to see like the business person on the plane because they're <laughs> just, you know, reading the newspaper or something. Um, you know, but so, but if you're trying to find a way to keep yourself in check, control that anxiety you can tell you can get feedback from other people if you're showing that anxiety you know or if it's working i mean it's only one source but it's a very important source mm -hmm. so it, it's it's really whoever you're around generally is a good reader of that mm -hmm. and the other source of course is your own body yes your own body tells you whether it's working or not yeah if you're feeling better i i wrote down from your book you you wrote feedback from the body and feedback from the world around us tells us to try to modify something and try something else. It just made me think of the very simple idea of like when you're doing a stretch or let's say you're doing yoga and something doesn't feel right, you only you know whether to keep holding that stretch or changing it because your sciatic is going to go out. So mm -hmm. it's the feedback from our body strikes me as poignant because of what you said earlier. There is so much information in our body. And there is part of this taking stock is you're not speaking from a purely cognitive sense. You're saying we have all this equipment where we came into the world with it. It's still there and we can bridge our way back to it so that this isn't about going back in the sense of bouncing back, but understanding that there is this reconnection with those parts of us that we maybe don't think about, which is why I really appreciate you talking about naming it. It's like a reintroduction. It's like <laughs> us 101. A couple more questions. Um, going back to earlier, we talked about having a sense of a future. And from your expertise, all the years of researching and listening to people's stories of how traumatic events impacted them, is it true then that this sense of future is one of the first things to go 
in our traumatic reactions that are that are very intense that we don't have a sense of future or we feel maybe disconnected from a sense of future is that the case and secondly if we start to resense a future is that a profound sign that we are in fact on a resilience trajectory when we feel intense distress when we feel intense fear when we feel intense sadness it's hard for us to believe that that will that that will end, mm. um, and it's the same thing for positive emotions. There's a big um, uh, the the big um, ent- interest in this in the business world, because when people feel intensely positive about something, uh, you know something happened and it makes them feel such joy, we tend to assume that we're we're going to feel this way now for a long time, and it doesn't last very long. So the sense, I think, when we're in these intense emo- emotions, there is no future. The future is this. This is this horrible thing. Is gonna, I'm just going to feel this way forever. And when we stop feeling that way, um, we, in a sense, you know, we, we can once again feel like, okay, you know, I, I can move on. And as I said, if it, if it really has changed our lives, we ultimately will more or less stop feeling so bad about it. Hmm. A metaphor kept emerging for me during the book that you never refer to, but it just kept coming to me about the canvas of our lives, right? That people sometimes say, I wish I could just tabula rasa. Well, we can't tabula rasa our past experiences, but through cultivating this flexibility mindset and the flexibility sequence, I just got this sense that we can see and approach this canvas of our lives differently. In that sense, it's like tabula flexibile. <laughs> flexible slate, uh, flexible canvas. And then I discovered that you are an artist. So I guess that came to me for a reason. Um, and I know you, you you don't advertise it out there, um, but I discovered this through this interview you did with Lisa Feldman Barrett. And so I wondered, you know, is there an art to science? Um, oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. It's science for me. Is has art in it. Science has an enormous amount of creativity in it. It also has um, a lot of drudgery and a lot of you know painstaking detail. Mm-hmm. But it, it's I think the best way I've heard it described was by the the philosopher Thomas Kuhn, who wrote about that. Really, was a philosopher of science. He wrote about this famous book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions: How Scientific Revolutions Come About, and he basically concluded from talking with scientists and his own research that science is really puzzle solving, Mm. you know, and puzzle solving at times, you know, if you take a jigsaw puzzle has a lot of, uh, you could call it tedious or at least painstaking getting all the pieces in place. And then you see the larger whole, you know, I I do a lot of research, pile up a lot of data and then try to understand what it all means and take a step back. And that's when I write papers that are not research papers, but more broad papers. And that's when I write a book and try to put it all together. Right. That's an enormously creative act. Enormously creative. Enormously. Indeed. I love that you said you love color. And I just thought to my, the words popped in my head and you love story and you love words and telling stories and listening to stories. So last question, I, I, I think about how perhaps your work as a researcher, as a research scientist, investigating the deep dimensions 
of human experience, grief, traumatic stress, traumatic events, the mechanisms of flexibility and resilience. How have these been a portal to discovering parts of yourself that you didn't know existed or parts of you that you've healed? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think, um, well, I, I think that um, it's enabled me, I think studying these phenomena has enabled me to learn a lot about myself. Um, you know, when I began to do the resilience work and map the trajectories, um, increasingly I was invited to give lectures, at, you know, across the world. And then sometimes I was asked to do full day workshops and full day seminars. And initially I thought, well, I can't do that. How do you do that? You know, often this is the, something clinicians do where they show case studies and I don't have those kind of things. I certainly haven't done most of the interviews I do are. I can't show them, you know, there's confidentiality uh, requirements around those things. So what I began to discover about myself was my, that I was immersed in this work and I enjoyed talking about it in front of large audiences. And a part of me that I really didn't know came out where I would sometimes take the microphone, <laughs> walk out into the audience and tell stories and, you know, ask, and I, you know, often I built in long question and answer periods because I loved spontaneous questions. Mm -hmm. And I found it was, you know, being like a, you know, a talk show host who goes out and you know, it's those daytime television talk shows. <laughs> and that was really kind of like, you know, it's quite a revelation. Like, geez, wow. I didn't know I could do this. And I, I think I do it actually pretty well. Mm -hmm. Um and, you know, so that was part of, I don't know exactly how that fits in the work, but it was part of, you know, the resilience work. People asked me when I first started studying bereavement, how do you, you know, and trauma, now trauma, how do you, you know, how do you handle all these, you know, gripping, terrible stories? Right. And my, my answer to that is they're all, they're, the majority of them, as my work has shown, are stories of people sort of taking charge and dealing with these events. There are stories about people who have who have gone through something really difficult and, and come out on the other side and they're, you know, sometimes very quickly, sometimes a little longer. And they've they've found a way to live their life in a satisfying, happy and productive way, despite what happened to them. And those things I think they changed me, you know, because they showed me how just this is these are human beings. This is a human race is able to do this. Dr. George Bonanno, the book is The End of Trauma, How the New Science of Resilience is Changing How We Think About PTSD. Thank you so much. This has just been such a pleasure. It's been my pleasure as well. Thank you. To find out more about George Bonanno's research and books, check links in the episode notes. The Foreseeable Now is hosted and executive produced by me, Lou Hanessian. Co-production and original music by Kano Sound. Thanks for listening and sharing. Please take a moment to subscribe and follow us on social media at the Foreseeable Now podcast. <laughs>